Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic will be solutions for PCOS sufferers. I'm so very excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Jordan Robertson. I interviewed Dr. Robertson uh, recently. I'll make sure that that podcast is uh, in the notes so you can click on that link and listen to our other interview where we talked about endometriosis. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Jordan Robertson. She is a naturopathic doctor and women's health author. Through her experience in medical literature review, critical appraisal, and research, Dr. Robertson has published over 12 literature reviews on women's health and has worked closely with McMaster University, writing and facilitating courses on integrative medicine for the last 10 years, speaking for their medical school, and working off-site for their endometriosis clinic at McMaster Hospital. Dr. Robertson has most recently lectured for the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors, uh, their convention, and uh, she spoke about PCOS, PMS, PMDD, and endometriosis. And she's published a book for women called Caring to Term on Reducing Miscarriage Risk. In her clinical practice, she focuses on women's health issues, including PMS, PCOS, infertility, menopause, breast cancer recovery as well. Dr. Robertson, thank you so much for being back as my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this topic. So I find very often time, very often times women are, um, they're kind of confused about PCOS. They're not sure if they actually have it or not. It's a very confusing diagnosis to actually make. So I think that's a good place for us to start is just... What is PCOS? What does that mean? And what are some of the signs and symptoms associated with that? Yeah, that's such a good point. It's interesting. Like as clinicians, I think it's actually easier for us to assume that many women have PCOS or most women have PCOS or some level of insulin sensitivity until proven otherwise. Um, It's actually easier to sort of rule it out than it is to rule it in. Um, So PCOS is essentially a a challenge with, it's a metabolic disease that that shows up um, as a hormonal disease in women where the crux of the issue is centered around insulin insensitivity activity um, and that starts to show up as hormonal symptoms because the impact that insulin has on 
ovulation um, and the impact that that has on testosterone and sort of the expression or regulation of regular female hormones. Um, And when that gets disturbed by this insulin insensitivity, we end up having downstream effects that show up in women as clinical symptoms, such as, uh, you know, anovulatory cycles or cycles where women don't ovulate. So they may not get a period for some time or have sporadic periods. Um, It may also show up as uh, signs and symptoms like elevated androgens or testosterone. Uh, So for women, that shows up often as unwanted hair growth, as uh, acne, and sort of in the more severe or later stages, they may have almost a male pattern hair loss on their head or androgenic hair loss. Um, And certainly, although weight is... um, increases in weight isn't a requisite for PCOS. We often find that women, even if they are, um, you know, sort of appear as if they have a a normal body weight, they actually carry higher uh, fat mass than women without PCOS. And so they may actually have elevated BMI or they may be a normal body weight, but their level of fat tissue that they carry on their frame is actually higher and certainly centered around abdominal weight carrying. Um, so those are sort of the, some of the symptoms that would be conditioner to want to do a more thorough assessment of PCOS, although the evidence suggests that there is a big delayed time to diagnosis in women with PCOS and it taking sort of two, five, maybe even 10 years for us to correctly identify women as having PCOS. Um, So I think this is such an important topic so that if women are seeing those changes to their cycle or they're maybe looking back thinking, you know what, my cycle was never really regular ever um, to approach their physician to be assessed because there is such a delay um, in, in making an accurate diagnosis for women. And I've heard from my patient population, and, and this is maybe what they think or maybe what their doctor has told them is that, well, that's just normal for you to be so irregular. <laughs> right. Um, and that's, I mean, that puts women at risk. So we know that when your women with PCOS actually are at risk for more cardiometabolic disease, they're at risk for unique cancers like endometrial endometrial cancer. Um, and so if they're, if they're not well treated and not well identified, we're really missing an opportunity for preventative medicine for the future. So when women don't have regular cycles, I mean, interestingly, conventionally, we often put them on the pill. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. Um, we do that to help protect their uterine lining. But by sort of masking those symptoms and not having a good conversation with women about uh, their the things that have put them at risk for the expression of those symptoms or the things that put them at risk for future, really doing them a bit of a disservice. Yeah, and some women might think like, well, I don't get my period regularly or I just don't get a period that. They're kind of, in a sense, happy about that, not having to deal with that. But the bigger thing is that this is putting you at risk, as you said, for heart disease, for various cancers, and um, and can impact your fertility as well. So why is making the diagnosis of PCOS so hard? Um, partly it's based off our diagnostic criteria and the way that that's evolved over time. So even the name polycystic ovaries is slightly misleading because we used to only make that diagnosis if women had cysts on their ovaries, um, you know, assessed by ultrasound. Um, And what we found over time that, A, that that's not a necessary feature to struggle with the metabolic disturbances of PCOS. So you don't 
have to have a positive ultrasound um, in order to have PCOS. Um, and you may or may not have elevated lab work or changes in physical symptoms such as acne. So it's a collection of symptoms. And usually when there's a collection of symptoms versus a definitive list of symptoms, we struggle to either put people in that category or out. When truthfully, we shouldn't really be declining treatment for women just because they don't quite fit the diagnosis. Even women who half fit the diagnosis for PCOS actually would benefit from some of the diet, lifestyle, and supplement interventions that we use. Um, we also have a challenge because often women don't seek assessment unless they are looking for fertility support. So we have a large group of perimenopausal or menopausal women that really were not well assessed um, for PCOS in their earlier years. And so unless they were really well assessed for their infertility, right, which would have maybe been 20 or 30 years ago when we, you know, generally struggled to make this diagnosis in the first place. If women um, chose not to have children, or if women didn't have their fertility well assessed, they may have been never diagnosed as having PCOS. And so there's actually some criteria that we should be using to assess women retrospectively, meaning if women in their past had irregular periods, if they have signs of high androgens, if they've ever had infertility or miscarriage, or if they have central weight gain or abdominal weight gain and they're menopausal, we could actually make a, a past diagnosis of PCOS and should still be educating those women on how to change their lifestyle and their diet to uh, prevent future risk of disease. And, um, and then speaking of menopause, let's, let's kind of shift backwards a little bit and speak about perimenopause because that's where I find personally it gets just infinitely harder to establish a diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. And part of that's because we start to call everything normal. And I say that in quotations right. um, in perimenopause, right? If women miss periods, if they have chin hair, if they, right, we start to just call everything as part of that sort of normal experience. Um, you know, some symptoms of PCOS get uh, dramatically worse during that perimenopausal uh, period of time. So certainly if women noticed a rapid change in any of those symptoms, that would maybe propagate a, a, a assessment like we want to have them assessed and really like we should see a decline in hormones through perimenopause not an increase and so if testosterone was bumped out of the range on the upper end of normal um, if estrogen was very high on the upper end of normal um, you know maybe we would you know do a retrospective diagnosis of, of PCOS but you're right that is a very challenging population because we chalk so much of their experience up to being a, a normal experience versus just a common experience that, that still deserves and warrants assessment and treatment. And so when we have a patient that we're suspicious that they might have PCOS and we run all of the blood work, um, very oftentimes, as you said, the blood work comes back normal. Or maybe there's just one or two markers that are slightly out of range. Right. So really what we should be doing when we're making that assessment is, I mean, part of the assessment is clinical. So to satisfy the diagnostic criteria, women either, either need to have um, signs of high androgens, so acne, hair growth, or hair loss, um, or elevated testosterone on lab work. So they don't need to have both. They can either have a clinical symptom or they can have the elevated lab work. They also need to have... Um, irregular periods or a lack of a period. 
and they may or may not have ultrasound that shows uh, polycystic ovaries. So that's like the true diagnostic criteria for PCOS. That said, there's other assessment tools that should be used that can help us make that diagnosis if those things are unclear. Often women with PCOS also have elevated levels of insulin and elevated HOMA IR scores. So when we compare sort of their insulin levels to their fasting glucose and make an assessment of insulin sensitivity, women often have an elevated HOMA IR score above 2.5 is very common. Um, We also tend to see uh, changes in their levels of luteinizing hormone to FSH ratio. And so we can use that to also help make an assessment if it's not quite clear. And in addition to that would be um, testing their AMH, which is traditionally a fertility marker. So we use that to assess ovarian reserve in women with infertility. But in PCOS, when we have multiple follicles that are forming cysts, uh, AMH levels actually are high normal. And so that, that may also help us confer a diagnosis if we're unclear about whether or not women are fitting into that true diagnostic criteria. I mean, we have even studies that show that depending on how we apply the diagnostic criteria, we get different answers. So some studies show that the populations, you know, 8% of women have PCOS, some show as high as 15 or 17%, and it depends on which diagnostic criteria we use. Um, That's kind of why I say as a clinician, it's actually easier to prove that women don't have PCOS. And so in addition to those tests, we should be running a thyroid panel, uh, prolactin to be sure that, um, you know, we're not talking about something other than PCOS. We certainly should be measuring uh, 17-hydroxy progesterone um, to try and rule out sort of that non-classical uh, 21-hydroxylase t- deficiency, which is a genetic deficiency that shows up very much like PCOS. So we should be ruling it out just as much as we're trying to rule it in. Um, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Perfect. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. And so then, as we work with patients and we're trying to figure out this picture, let's kind of shift gears and talk about treatment. What are the what are the big treatment things that we want to think about, whether it's supplements or HRT or birth control pill or lifestyle changes? Yeah, that's a great question. And really, it kind of depends on what our what our overall goals and outcomes are. Um, and, and we really should prioritize our treatment based on what that goal is, and also what patients are willing to uh, willing to able to sort of comply with, right? And, and sometimes certainly we would have to maybe raise a white flag and, and use a medication to try and induce some kind of support, whether that's metformin or oral contraceptives, which do have good evidence for reducing cancer risk in women with PCOS. Um, but it's really worthwhile to have a conversation with patients about what our overarching uh, themes and goals are with, with treatment. Um, where we see the greatest sort of clinical benefit uh, comes from diet and and weight loss. And so the way I sort of prioritize how I treat patients with PCOS is we have treatment options that improve their clinical picture, meaning that they reduces their acne, reduces their hair growth, uh, improves their menstrual cycle regularity, improves their ovulation rates. And then we have treatments that improve their biochemical picture. So it, they lower their insulin, it lowers their free androgen index or their testosterone. Um, you know, it improves their SHBG or their hormone panel. Um, the patients don't necessarily feel that 
to see those biochemical changes. And But we know as practitioners that if we can support sort of the underlying physiology, that we are doing better for those patients. But where we get the real clinical benefit is through diet. Um, and most of the evidence suggests that inducing weight loss, no matter how we do it, actually is what gains the greatest um, benefit for patients with PCOS. So it's common, certainly when we have insulin as the, the crux of uh, condition, for us to encourage patients to eat a lower carbohydrate diet. And certainly if patients eat the same number of calories, but less carbohydrates, their biochemical markers of their disease get better. But to see the clinical change and to actually have improvement in their menstrual cycle regularity, they actually have to be in caloric deficit. And it actually doesn't matter if they keep their carbohydrates higher um, I know that the people that are proponents of the ketogenic diet are really cringing at that, but in theory, it's actually all about caloric deficit. And if we can induce weight loss with caloric deficit, no matter how we slice it, patients uh, get the greatest benefit. Certainly by encouraging lower carbohydrate, we get better biochemical regulation of their disease. Um, and so it's, it's worthwhile to have a conversation with patients around diet based on what they think they can comply with. Um, it's interesting. I'll point out sort of one specific study. They actually used a paleo diet in one particular study. I'm just going to pull it up here so I can uh, give you the um, the uh, author's name as well. But essentially what they did was they prescribed them a, a paleo style diet, but let the patients eat cheese because they found if they let them eat cheese that they actually complied better um, to the diet. And so, you know, we know that uh, dairy is really not a positive thing for women with acne and with high androgens, but they found that by giving them cheese every day, the patients stuck to the rest of their diet, which helped them lose the weight. It helped them improve their insulin, their HOMA IR scores, et cetera. The author's name for that particular study is PHY, P-H-Y. Um, done in 2015, which is kind of a neat one because it's combining sort of that low carbohydrate premise, but also recognizing that behavior change is maybe our greatest obstacle to supporting women with PCOS. Fantastic. <clears throat> so once you talk about diet, then what do you usually discuss next with your patient? Right. So diet around, so just kind of go back to that for one second, because I think I, I left a few things out. Um, so when we build the diet for patients with PCOS, caloric restriction is sort of the, the overarching theme. Certainly, we want to encourage higher protein and lower carbohydrate within that. And even suggesting to patients that they eat you know, sort of as much protein as possible. So we call that ad libitum in the research. If we encourage uh, high protein, that patients automatically have better uh, management of their caloric intake. We do want to recommend lower dairy um, and lower processed foods. There actually is newer concepts in uh, what's called ages or advanced uh, glycosylated endpoints that when women with PCOS eat processed food, it actually harms them more than just the, the components of the food itself. So the cookie, yes, has sugar, but the cookie also has these glycosylated endpoints that are worsening insulin sensitivity in women with PCOS. And so we certainly would want to encourage them to eat a more whole foods diet. And then there's some specific foods like walnuts and flax oil that have been shown to have some benefit as well. So that's kind of how I construct the diet, the most important being caloric restriction. And then we layer on these other strategies to try and help us get where we want to go. 
Supplement-wise, there's really only a few supplements that have been shown to have dramatic clinical benefit in PCOS, um, fish oil being one of them. Um, I like fish oil because of the improvement it shows in insulin sensitivity. It also lowers inflammation and improves mood in women with PCOS. So one of the bigger um, you know, side challenges with PCOS is the level of mental health illness that um, comes with that diagnosis. And we think it's in part related to that insulin insensitivity and inflammation that adolescents with PCOS and women with PCOS report significantly higher depression scores than women without. And fish oil actually improves the mood of women with PCOS while it improves the markers of inflammation and insulin sensitivity. So it's a very positive treatment um, to use fish oil because we're sort of killing two birds or multiple challenges um, with one intervention. Another intervention that I'm a a big proponent of is the the B vitamin isomer um, inositol. Um, And so there's really some interesting research on inositol. It's actually probably one of the best studied nutritional supplements um, out there. There's multiple clinical trials um, on PubMed specifically for uh, PCOS. And what inositol does is improves insulin sensitivity in women with PCOS and actually helps encourage better ovulation rates. And so even within a week of starting inositol, we see hormonal changes at the level of the ovary that is uh, leaning towards better ovulation. And women should expect to have ovulation, um, you know, within sort of 40 to 60 days after starting inositol as part of their treatment. Um, And so it's a really important sort of um, cornerstone as far as like the the kinds of supplements that we want to use for women. The third sort of most important one would be vitamin D. Um, So I actually have done an entire podcast just on vitamin D reference ranges and PCOS, which can be found on my podcast. Um, But the gist of it is, is that the reference range that we currently use in Canada is not applicable for women with PCOS. And we actually need their vitamin D status to be higher in order for them to reduce their risk of miscarriage and infertility. Um, and to improve their insulin sensitivity. So our current reference range in Canada is 75 uh, nanomolars per liter is the lower limit. And certainly 9 out of 10 Canadians will have vitamin D deficiency when we test them. Um, But for women to actually have positive impact for their PCOS, their vitamin D status needs to be closer to 110, 120 on lab work, which is is a really unique finding that we actually have to be optimal with vitamin D status versus just, you know, creeping inside the reference range. So wonderful. So you've spoken about fish oil and inositol and vitamin D and of course the diet. If we can go back to the diet for just a second. Sure. Because I can kind of feel our listeners, I can feel what they're thinking, which would be, well, do I have to do this diet for the rest of my life? (laughs) Well, so I mean, my, my, I've studied a lot of behavioral uh, science when it comes to diet. And what we find is that if patients feel um, flexibility, autonomy, um, and choice in their diet, that that actually predicts longer term success when it comes to their health challenges. And putting patients on a restrictive diet with the sort of, I say, like eye on the prize of it being over at some point, we generally over the long haul have poorer success. And so those patients generally gain the weight back. They generally will relapse as far as their hormonal symptoms. Whereas if we can encourage patients to make slow change, impactful change, right? So like I say, with the caloric restriction, if patients need to keep carbohydrates in their diet to keep them happy, 
and that helps them stay in a caloric deficit, that's actually helping our overall goal much better than them binge purging through cycles of a very low carbohydrate diet and then, you know, losing motivation and losing, uh, you know, perspective on what the importance of their diet actually is. So my overarching theme when, and this is, I use this term when I, um, you know, lecture to my colleagues as well, is that the overarching theme with diet and PCOS is that we need them to do it for about six months to start to see some of the clinical endpoints. And so even when we're studying it in fertility, um, interestingly, as a side note, PCOS may be the only time we want to delay treatment for fertility um, in favor of diet and lifestyle, right? Where normally we are worried about moms getting older, uh, we push them through fertility care like as soon as possible. Women with PCOS actually would benefit from six months of diet support before undergoing IVF or undergoing um, fertility care. So whatever it is that we do with them, we need them to do it. Uh, and so that's why, you know, when we pull together the research, it actually suggests that even small changes to a woman's diet does show up as clinical change. Um, and so we should focus on that as clinicians rather than, um, you know, shooting for the, you know, maybe what we would consider to be the gold standard, which would be a, a lower carbohydrate diet. And then the other kind of conventional treatments for PCOS you had mentioned as the birth control pill. Yep. And I would say, um, hopefully metformin, um, although that's, you know, I would say that maybe depends on the practitioner, but te technically the evidence for metformin is, is excellent um, for PCOS, depending on what our goals are. So, I mean, the reason that women get put on the pill is because having long periods of time without ovulation and without a period does cause endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial overgrowth. So even missing a period for three months, we see women have some cellular change in their uh, endometrial lining that increases their lifetime risk of endometrial cancer. Um, so when we look big picture, the pill is inducing a withdrawal bleed or at least not preventing or sorry, it's preventing women from having that endometrial growth, which does give them huge, imp hugely improved uh, reduction in risk of endometrial cancer over their lifetime. It also reduces the risk of ovarian cancer over their lifetime, which is also higher in women um, with PCOS. So technically, it's achieving some very big clinical endpoints for that population. But no, it's not addressing the underlying cause. And, and, in, and the oral contraceptive does worsen insulin sensitivity. So often these women gain weight on this treatment, um, or it's worsening their triglycerides and some of their cardiometabolic risk. So I would say if women are using the pill, that really shouldn't be the only thing they do. We should be also inducing lifestyle change and using fish oil, which does mitigate some of the negatives of the pill. Um, but technically, it is achieving some big goals we have with PCOS. I would say there's probably a better way to do it. Um, but technically, you know, if women are struggling with the weight management piece, um, you know, we certainly as a, as a big goal want to reduce cancer risk in women with PCOS. The other question I often get asked is whether or not using the pill decreases for future fertility in these women with PCOS. And, and that's a myth. Um, the pill does not reduce their likelihood of getting pregnant at a future date. And often for women, the way the pill lowers their testosterone, it may actually temporarily improve their fertility when they do come off of it. Um, so it's important just to have a really like unbiased conversation about what the role of the pill is um, for those women so that we can make sure we're helping the patient sort of achieve whatever their penultimate goals are. 
And then can you speak a little bit about progesterone? Yes, like as a treatment, you mean? Yes. So where where the greatest evidence for progesterone use comes in is for fertility. Um, and certainly for women that are attempting to get pregnant, they may benefit from a um, support with bioidentical progesterone either in the luteal phase or after they've achieved a positive pregnancy test. That's where the best evidence comes in. Um, progesterone itself doesn't, it's like the last step of a thousand step process in women with PCOS. So yes, they have low progesterone, but it's because they don't ovulate and that's because they have insulin insensitivity. And so using progesterone as a support for uh, hormonal regulation or to support, you know, their potential, uh, you know, PMS-like symptoms that they may experience um, that really is as much of a band-aid as an oral contraceptive in theory, right? Um, it's not really addressing the root of their uh, concerns, but we do have substantial evidence that we should be supporting women that are attempting to conceive with progesterone because they may not make enough progesterone in their luteal phase given their PCOS and, and certainly would uh, carry to term more often um, if we did support them in their fertility journey with, with bioidentical pro uh, progesterone. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have quite the, the evidence to suggest using it for really any other reason. And so are there any other treatment options that we've not discussed? Um, there are a few uh, conventional treatments that we haven't discussed. I'm a, a big fan of metformin. Um, there's a lot of evidence for using metformin to help women regulate their cycle to fall pregnant. There's evidence that metformin helps uh, women not miscarry. Actually, there was a study published this week on how insulin levels in women with PCOS is actually toxic to the placenta. And this is why women with PCOS miscarry more often. So interestingly, their eggs are perfect. So we think of cysts and we think the eggs are a problem. Uh, the eggs in women with PCOS are actually perfect and they actually make excellent egg donors. It's not the eggs that are the problem, it's the environment we attempt to grow them in. Um, and so what happens with women with PCOS is that their placenta is attempting to grow in a state of, of cardiovascular disease. And so they're growing new blood vessels when they have blood vessel inflammation and they have insulin insensitivity and elevated homocysteine, you know, which is a marker of, uh, of cardiovascular disease, um, insulin is actually toxic to the placenta. And so we know that women with PCOS, their placentas are smaller. They have less blood vessels. This is why they're at risk for small babies, actually. And so metformin actually mitigates some of the, that toxicity that um, insulin sort of causes to the placenta. So I'm a big fan of using metformin. Uh, berberine would be your herbal option. Um, but we don't have quite as much evidence for using uh, berberine as we do metformin. Um, the other drug that has a great sort of um, clinical evidence is spironolactone, which can be used for those high androgen cases where women are suffering from hair loss and hair growth um, and acne. Um, that's the drug that really has the best efficacy for improving those high androgens. Um, you know, in the, in the natural world, we, you know, go to attempt to lower testosterone, um, with things like inositol, which does work, but has less efficacy than, um, than spironolactone. There's some evidence for using zinc. Um, there's some evidence for using um, cinnamon, carnitine, which they all are supporting uh, that insulin regulation. They certainly don't do it as well as weight loss. And so that's why I would sort of deprioritize them. 
So the big picture here is there's no easy way to diagnose PCOS and there's no easy way to treat PCOS either. Exactly. <laughs> and as you said, and like, that we have to be patient. <laughs> yeah, we have to be patient and really we want to get to the root cause. <clears throat> right. And it's important that we do this, especially in our younger population. So we have a hard time diagnosing adolescents with PCOS. Um, but if we can catch women and support them before they become pregnant, we can stop this genetic cycle of PCOS. So women with PCOS give birth to babies who are at risk for PCOS. And it's because of what happens during gestational growth that actually changes the way that those babies grow. So they have smaller placentas, like I, I noted, um, they are smaller, but those babies also are grown in a very high stress environment. So babies that are born to women with PCOS have higher HPA axis or um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis activation. And we think that that may be some of this cyclical and familial pattern we're seeing in women that when babies are born small and they're born in a high stress environment, it's actually wiring these kids for rapid weight gain when they start to grow, um, you know, early puberty and them struggling with insulin resistance and PCOS. And so, yes, the we, it's complicated. Yes, it's challenging. And yes, it's slow. But we're also seeing generational um, passing of these challenges from woman to woman. And so unless we sort of early intervene in women in their teens and in their 20s, we are essentially are setting up their female offspring for the same challenges. And so this is a big like sort of population issue that we face in North America that really deserves a little bit more attention than we're currently giving it, uh, given it that it's the most common endocrine disorder that we're diagnosing women with right now. So Jordan, you've shared a ton of great information with us today, and I really thank you for that. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think would be important to share? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think my like my biggest take home is, as, you know, if you if you think you have PCOS, you might, right? Like that's kind of the, the take home message is that it's easier for us to ex like rule out a diagnosis of PCOS than it is to rule it in. And if you're curious about your symptoms, um, it really warrants being well assessed by someone who's experienced and, and curious, right, um, about your hormonal symptoms. Um, that's really the big take home. I think patients have to be quite strong advocates um, when they have PCOS to get the kind of care and assessment that they need um, because we do chalk so much of their experience up to a normal female hormonal experience um, rather than, you know, sort of jumping in with, with good assessment and a good education around treatment options. And so I think that's probably the biggest take home for me is that women just need to be better educated around what, uh, what is truly normal with the, respect to their cycle and what is maybe a reflection of, of some underlying imbalance that, that should be assessed. Jordan, how can our listeners find out more about you? Um, that's a good question. So um, I do have a website, which is uh, doctor, which is drjordand.com. That's our clinic website. Um, we, I do have a strong social media presence as well and encourage patients um, or listeners to um, access me through Instagram, which my handle is drdrjordand, um, or through Facebook, which is backsla backslash Burlington Naturopath. We do publish on there when my podcast recordings are put out. Um, you can link back through my bio to get access to previously recorded podcasts. Um, we have some downloadable materials there on miscarriage risk and how 
to get properly assessed. Um, and then I do have my book, which is Carrying to Term, and it's available on iTunes and Amazon for purchase. And it's all encompassing when it comes to fertility and miscarriage. So we include other diagnoses like endometriosis or luteal phase defect. But we do talk at length about PCOS because of the high frequency that women struggle with this disease and, and how impactful it is on fertility. Dr. Robertson, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been another awesome interview. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Jordan Robertson. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carrie.